Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 90, recorded on uh, December 10th of 2019. Uh, this is the podcast where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and we dig into some of the weekly news stories in the photographic news cycle that are geeky, technical, legal, or otherwise interesting when we dig a little bit deeper. Uh, and so some of these stories might not be covered by everybody, and that's exactly what we are after. Other times we take some of the big stories and we pontificate or extrapolate based on our opinions and we hopefully come up with some great discussions and with me today for that discussion uh is uh, one of my favorite hosts of this podcast um you might know him as a music photographer with his own podcast behind the shot.tv uh if you're in the southern california area you may uh, you might hear him on the radio on kcal rocks on the weekends this is steve brazel a man of many talents and a fellow photo geek steve thanks for being back on the show how are you, my friend? I'm wonderful. Uh, you know, I'm having a great time with the other show that we are starting to, to put together uh, on a, basically, it's a photo critique. And uh, I'd like to plug that here right off the top, because uh, there will be another episode coming out soon. I don't know if we have the exact air date on that yet, but it has been recorded. And I had a lot of fun doing that. It was uh, uh, a little bit shorter in the number of photos, but we somehow still ran the clock out quite lengthy. I don't know if, if you we'll give ever... people space, they will fill it. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I hope people enjoy that when it comes out. And uh, the link to the first uh, critique show that we did will be in the show notes for this episode episode so that you can see what we get up to when we are talking about other people's photographs. But beyond that, Steve, uh, what else have you been up to? Uh, all the normal stuff. And that show, my goal, we actually recorded it right before we're recording this one. And my goal is to have that one ready by this coming Thursday, the 12th of December, and have it up on that Thursday, all things being equal. Uh, that will be the plan. And I'm loving doing those. They're up at the Behind the Shot YouTube channel, uh, still doing the Behind the Shot podcast, doing music photography. I got to shoot a, an unusual show for me the other day because normally being in rock radio, I only get to shoot rock concerts. But I got to shoot Snoop Dogg uh, <laughs> Friday uh, for Live Nation here locally. Uh, they needed a house photographer. And just I love shooting a variety of stuff because – I love rock. I'm a rocker. But man, when you go see an icon like Snoop Dogg, it just lightens up your day. I, I would imagine so. Uh, and I'm sure the smells in the air might lighten up your mind a little bit as well. Well, and it was funny because right before Snoop Dogg was an old person that you may know if you're as old as I am, Warren G. And uh, Warren G was really, really big back in the day and still touring with Snoop. Put on an amazing show, but he did light up partway through the show, and then handed it to the audience. And the audience started passing it around, at which point he went, am I going to get it back? Never got it back. <laughs> but of course, somebody that shared it passed out right before Snoop Dogg. So yeah, it was an interesting experience, to say the least. I, I would imagine so. Uh, and I, you know, music photography is an entirely different genre. I've done some orchestral stuff, but not with a, a truly impassioned every member of like a five-piece rock band or Snoop Dogg or anything like that. Um, and the characters and the personalities, I think, are what you're really trying to capture in those moments, right? Yeah, they are. I look at it as two things. Generally, it's photojournalism. Although if you're shooting for a band or a venue, they're marketing shots and you have a little more leeway on your processing in that case. But not only that, they're environmental portraits. So you are, yes, you can do a tight portrait, an onstage portrait, 
but most music shots being a little wider are showing a portrait of somebody performing their job in the environment with which they perform that job. And when you look at it that way, it makes telling the story easier through your composition. Well, and uh, of course, your camera is your tool to uh, to take those photos. And, um, you know, this podcast, as we continue on to our geeky discussions, we often talk about the latest and greatest tools that we have at our disposal or the tools that we were uh, sort of about to use, you know, the the latest camera that, you know, there was an announcement of a camera lens accessory that we are uh, interested in. And there's been a lot of talk in the mirrorless market, especially from Canon and Nikon, what their next flagship trophy cameras are going to be. These are not the cameras that everybody's going to buy, but these are the cameras that everybody is going to aspire to one day own. This one or the next iteration, whenever that comes, the same has been true with Canon in the past of their 1D series, Nikon in their uh, D12345 series, etc. Um, and so news from Petapixel actually originally broke from Canon rumors is that a 75 megapixel Canon EOS RS uh, with dual card slots coming in February of 2020. And that's not very far away. So uh, the fact that we haven't heard a whole lot on these rumors up to this point means that either they're true, but Canon is being very tight-lipped, or that it might not be as true as we think. Because if something is this big, and the market is such that if, if you have something coming months away from now, and you're not spilling at least something about it, people might buy into another system. So you at least might want to leak something. And we don't know where any information on this has come from. Um, but the specs, uh, quote unquote, revealed by Canon, uh, Canon Rumor Source claims that the camera will feature a 75 megapixel image sensor that's, quote, focused on dynamic range, dual card slots, a joystick, Digic 9 processor, similar mass, uh, max burst to the EOS R, high resolution EVF, no touch bar, and a similar body style to the current EOS R, which then generally means that it wouldn't have a built-in grip like the traditional 1D, right, right. Uh, you know, 1D, like the 1D Xers. Exactly. Uh, so wh what are your thoughts on what Canon is bringing to the table? And what do you think of, like, is it right around the corner? Do you think that they really have this giant that they are about to uh, pull the sheets off in terms of their, their, their greatest reveal of this wonderful new piece of uh, artistic uh, endeavor, uh, technical? It, it's as it funny because as, you, as you're doing this, this setup for this story, I'm thinking, is it possible that Canon has the ability to keep better secrets than Apple now? Who would have ever saw that coming? <laughs> um, there's a couple of things. First of all, obviously, these are rumors. But these are rumors from Canon Rumors. And Canon Rumors is my go-to site for Canon information. They are, they are extremely uh, careful with what they say and how they rate them as a CR1 or a CR2 or a CR3. And so... It's interesting to me, and I, I I don't dismiss this by any means. Couple things. First of all, Canon, don't forget, is also going to be releasing a 1DX Mark III coming soon. That will be yeah. the high end sports type, you know, body that's a standard DSLR body. But let's go straight to the elephant in the room. And I told you in the green room before we recorded this story. To me, is one of those where I am a one subject voter. I don't want 75 megapixels. I don't need a 75 megabyte photo. I went a Snoop Dogg. I shot 
four bands. I shot more than the standard three songs because I was the house photographer. I got some extra, extra ability to shoot longer. And I came back with 1200 pictures, right? I didn't keep nearly that. But I've got to put that on my machine. I've got to be able to call them. I don't need 75 megapixel pictures. I'm not printing billboards. And even if I was, for me, I can print a billboard without a 75 megapixel camera. I understand there's needs for it. I understand there are specialties where that pixel count can be very, very handy in different things. Having that detail, having that editability, having the pixels there for you to utilize makes the pixels so I'm kind of making the argument that I want the 75 megapixels. Um, <laughs> having that many megapixels makes the pixels one of your tools. They're no longer the subject that you work on with your tools. When you've got that many of them, they are one of your tools. So I'm not saying there's not a benefit to 75 megapixels. I just don't personally know too many people that want it. I don't understand that that's where they went. And they're, they're saying it's focused on dynamic range. They're not saying high ISO performance, which is what most people you know, care about. The, by the way, one thing you didn't mention, the Canon rumors thing also says that the, their source for this shot a prototype. Right. But just because it, you have a prototype camera doesn't mean that whatever goes into that uh, that prototype ends up into a final product. There could be multiple different versions of prototypes that have different. Uh, but it different means specs. it's something. It, it means that it's something being tested. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you're right about that 75 megapixels. I don't know of how many people are clamoring for megapixels at this point. I mean, I've got a 47 megapixel camera, and that's more than enough. I, most of my professional career. I had photographed with uh, 20 megapixel cameras, 18 to 21 megapixels. And um, I've published books. I've had images, uh, not necessarily on billboards, but printed 140 inches tall. Um, and I've been okay with that, right? And so do we need it? Well, maybe not. Some people might. And some people that might need that high quality, high resolution image and high quality dynamic range, they might be doing artwork reproduction photography, product photography, portrait photography, where um, they are in control of their lighting. They do not need to crank up the the, the gain on the sensor to higher uh, uh, ISO settings and, and everything else. So there could be a place for that. When I say it's sort of a trophy camera, I meant that it is not for everybody. It's not a camera that everybody's going to own because it only suits a specific need. And RS might come in uh, in relation to the uh, the previous Canon uh, 5DS and 5DSR that were their high resolution 5D right. series camera bodies, uh, which also didn't perform incredibly well in those uh, high ISO scenarios or uh, you know fast rate of fire, etc. Compared to a sports shooting camera, uh, they're designed for different purposes. Well, still, and, and here's the thing. I think there will be people who want it. I just don't think most of the people that want it actually need it. And most of the people who could really use it have done fine without it. There are some interesting things in here. First of all, the high-res EVF, I think, could be very, very handy to a lot of people. I think that's an actual usable feature. The burst rate is fine. Joystick's fine. Dual card slots is going to be a big one. That, that, that has been complaints from people. Yeah, let's hope that it's uh, CF Express, which is now being widely adopted across the industry. Could uh, they do when, 75 megapixels realistically with any realistic burst rate without it? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're using XQD cards, uh, you'd, you'd get right, right. decent. Uh, uh, I'm which talking is, what Canon normally does, though. 
CF or S high end SD. The, the C fast cards are growing long in the tooth. I mean, that's yeah. what was equipped with the one DX Mark two, which was great for when, it, uh, when it was current. But if you're trying to push 75 megapixels of frame at a fairly decent frame rate, you're going to need more throughput than the maximum ceiling that C fast 2.0 can push out. So they've got to switch to something else. Uh, and let's hope that that is CF express. And then everybody's on the same, uh, same bandwagon. Um, and you know, uh, Lumix and, uh, Nikon and everything they're going to be if they're not already uh, compatible with CF Express cards if they were previously XQD compatible. Um, I think that's the best way to go. That that's the biggest growth area in terms of the bandwidth, and and it alleviates that bottleneck. So and, it makes here, sense here, they might go there. Here's one other thing: people are going to compare that they're coming out with an EOS, and of course the 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 common thread nowadays is well, you know, our DSLR is dead. They're going to come out with the One DX Mark III, and again. I think a lot of the pros are going to still opt for the 1DX Mark III, and people are going to compare that the, D, the, the D6, the Nikon D6, is rumored to also be announced soon. In fact, same time frame, basically, right? February? Yep. I think. But that, to me, is not the right comparison because they're completely different use models, and really the answer to this equation is going to be price point, which we don't know. What is that 75 mix, megapixel you know, RS going to cost? They're going to have to be competing with the A7R4 from Sony. I mean, that's right. the other high megapixel player, uh, 61 megapixels there with tons of bells and whistles. And if Canon decides to take their uh, previous mentality of hoarding features away from one class of product so that it's only in a different class of product, um, then that will be a nail in their coffin. Because if they if they take anything out of this camera, just to say that you would have to spend more for it, then nobody's going to buy it because the Sony a7R might have that feature. And the difference between 61 and 75 megapixels is not a huge jump, especially when you're jumping into an entirely new platform. If you are currently a flapping mirror style photographer, where especially on Sony, you can adapt all of your EF glass very easily to that Sony e-mount. Right. Oh, I agree. And again, I, I think mirrorless is the way of the future, but the 1DX Mark III, make no mistake, that is going to have a market. The 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 Nikon D6 is going to have... Well, let's talk about that because there's kind of a piggyback story on this. Okay. The, the Nikon D6, uh, all, uh, reported by F-Stoppers here, the other article that I have uh, related to that one. Uh, the D6 could be announced in February with these specifications written by Andy Day. We've used articles from him before. We've complimented his photography. What do you think about uh, the article and the features? What, what are the features here, Steve? Well, the features are improved IBIS uh, to basically mimic what they have right now in the Z6 and Z7. I think that will be huge. 24 megapixels. This is the D6 is going to replace the D5. We're talking the the pro body, right? Sport shooters, high-end sport shooters. And that's only 24 megapixels because that's all that they're going to need. It does 4K at 60p and the rumor is that it will do raw video. This is something that Nikon has been purporting to, um, you know, with um, Atomos, with their Ninja V uh, external recorder. Now, they've announced compatibility with some Lumix and some Nikon uh, Z series cameras to be able to record raw video uh, with that external output. Now, 
That is something that is going to be more and more commonplace, not only from external recorders, but internally as well, as we have more and more bandwidth to funnel into uh, our memory cards. And so the D6 is purported, based on these rumors, to have those dual CF Express card slots, right. which can go up to a ridiculous amount. Like, I think it's 1600 megabytes a second. Like, it it quadruples the maximum throughput of an XQD card. And I don't think any camera on the market today or in the next generation that support these right out of the box natively will be able to saturate that bus one thing they say in this article though is the burst rate is not in the rumored specs but we know that the d5 was 12 frames a second if they're bumping this up with a newer processor and they're bumping it up to have the dual cards the cf express cards we could also see a bump up possibly in frames per second, which will matter because the 1DX Mark III is going to have a, a rather crazy frame rate. 16 I think, frames per second, yeah. Say that again? 16 frames per second purported on the uh, the 1D Mark III. Which I could see the, the Nikon III, D6 yeah. matching. I think that the market right now for super high-end DSLRs, while it's, you know, DSLRs are shrinking, the real pros that use these high-end bodies are not. It's the same number of people out there doing those those rare high-end jobs, sports shooters, high-end tour photographers. Those people, I think, are still going to be looking at these depending on some of the specs we don't know about on the mirror. But again, I'm, I'm interested to see. I just, for me, I, I could have seen doing the EOS, uh, the, the next level EOS R, and there should be another one, by the way. This is not the only rumored EOS R coming out. There's a lot of rumors in what's coming up from these companies. And I think the reason why is because we are all in a holding pattern. Um, you know, if you are, I mean, I've jumped onto the, the Lumix S bodies and I love the S1R. It's the best camera that I've ever used. And I encourage anybody that gets a chance to get their hands on one of these, or if you're a Canon shooter, an EOS R series body or Nikon, a, a Z7, or just get your hands on any of these cameras in person to get a feel for what's to come because everybody's just waiting to see, okay, well, how much is going to be funneled into the R and D on the high end. And if we don't have that high end product to aspire to, then where does the current range of products get us? Because it's like you're climbing a ladder, right? You, you want to start at some level, but you also need to know what's two, three, four steps above you. And if there's nothing there, you don't want to start the climb. So we're waiting. We're That's waiting actually a really see. good analogy. Uh, and, and I think, I'm curious what you think about this. I'm looking at, you know, the influx of, I don't want to call them third party because Sony owns, owns it now. <clears throat> but, you know, for the longest time, everybody thought of Nikon and Canon. Now you've got the Sonys and you've got the Panasonics and you've got the Fujis. I still think that to a certain point, the upper echelon executives of the, the the photographic industries, I think they're not sure where they're going. I yeah. really think that there is some confusion in the upper executive ranks on pulling the trigger to go one way or the other. And they are right now trying to walk that fine line of bring mirrorless in with some features, but you know, let's not get rid of that old base in case we're wrong. Well, I think that anybody that is banking solidly on the old base is going to disappear. 
Um, that, that, I agree. Because that old base will disappear, but it's just a matter of how long that's going to take. You want to milk that for as much as it's worth, right? Because you know, clearly you've already put your research and development dollars into it. You've got things in production right now. You want to get that return on that investment that you've already made to last for a very long time. No case in point, one of my favorite lenses is the Canon MPE 65mm macro lens. And that lens was originally uh, designed in the late 90s, debuted in uh, 1999 was when it was first made available. That's two decades ago. And it is still one of my go-to macro lenses today. Yes, it's a niche product, but that gets amortized over 20 years. Canon is definitely making money on that lens. Oh, yeah. They might not have made money on it for the first five years, but if you have lenses that you have brought out that might be a, a tilt-shift lens or a super telephoto lens that is designed on this previous mount, and you're still you know, five years within the production cycle of it, uh, you might not have made your money back on that R&D at this point. And so you want to make sure that you cross that break even point and then some before you start reinventing the wheel because once you do that your old portfolio of equipment once you basically say we're all in on the mirrorless nobody's going to buy your other inventory because they realize that you're no longer going to be supporting it well you're antiquating your own gear but yeah. again if you know that you're going to be antiquating your own gear sooner or later you still end up with the scenario of heading in the right direction. And some of the choices made by companies like Canon in the first EOS R that they released and what was missing from it, you know, that, that pros wanted, uh, I think is telling. I think these cameras, uh, these camera companies don't necessarily know where the market is currently splitting. They know the high-end users are still going to buy the D5, D6, the 1DX, you know, mark whatever. But I think at a lower level, the, the, the standard everyday working pros, wedding photographers, photojournalists, music photographers, I don't think that they really know yet at what point they're going to trigger the average person to move. And therefore, I think some of the feature sets like 75 megapixels that they're choosing to put into these things um, are at times misguided. I'm not saying useless. I'm just saying I'm not sure if I were in charge, I'd do it in the order that they're doing it. 18 months, Steve. That's what I give it. Um, so not this uh, coming late spring, early summer, but the next one. I think that that's when the really big push away from the standard model that we've all been used to, the traditional EF mount, the F mount. I think that's really when it's going to say, okay, we'll still produce the legacy products for everybody. Um, but there's going to be no, uh, no new development, uh, maybe a couple token things here and there, but really everything is switching towards mirrorless. Yes. Our portfolio of equipment is still available. You know, if you wanted to buy that Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens, it's still there. We will still make it. Um, but if you want the next, the, the next greatest thing, um, then maybe the successor to that one will only be available on the EOS R mount. And if you want to have the next greatest of any of these niches, you have to adopt into the new platform. And as soon as these manufacturers embrace these niche, uh, if you're a wedding photographer, you need to have uh, a macro lens of some uh, some course to, to get you know, close-up ring shots and right. uh, uh, wedding dress details and flower details and all that. So when they have the entire system completely fleshed out with all of these niches, and I don't see that taking more than 18 months to have at least some token lens in every category, 
um, then that's when you have the mass exodus. Uh, that's my well, prediction. and you've got adapters to adapt. You know the the EF lenses to the to the R mount. Um, I think you're right. 2021. I actually think 2020 is going to be the the buster year where we see some radical advances in releases that will then get people saying, "Okay, I'm either ready to switch brands or I'm ready to switch standards from yep. you know DSLR to mirrorless." At which point then, by the time they pull the trigger, you're looking 2021. But I think this next year actually is going to be an interesting year from a news point of view, and it will show results the year after. And, you know, we have this, uh, it's not a void because everybody's playing in this new space, but we've got a lot of manufacturers that are coming in making third-party lenses over the last five years, really, that we didn't have previously. And so I keep my finger on the pulse of that, and that leads into our next story, um, where I heard an announcement from uh, ZY Optics, uh, Yongzi Optics, I'm not sure if I'm, uh, or no, uh, Zongyi Optics is how it's, uh, I don't have the spelling in front of me. Anyhow, uh, they make uh, the Metacon and and uh, the Speedmaster series of, uh, of lenses uh, for a variety of different camera mounts. And they just announced a competitor to that Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens. And I was immediately intrigued because if you have, uh, it's an 85 millimeter lens, f2.8 maximum aperture with a 1, uh, 1x to 5x range. That's fairly closely mimicking that Canon MPE 65, which if you were a Nikon shooter, you could never use, although it's adaptable to other platforms, of course. Um, now you have a high magnification macro lens for the masses. So the day of the announcement, put in an order with um, the fastest FedEx shipping because I really wanted to get my hands on something like this. I'm, I'm writing a book on macro photography. This is something that I can add in before my exactly, uh, right. files in deadline, uh, especially if it's something that any Nikon or Sony or uh, you know even Micro Four Thirds, any user of any different platform wants to use this as a native lens, then if it is as good as it sounds on paper, then, uh, then yeah, absolutely. I, I want to talk about that. And so this is a lens being released in 2019, almost 2020. And I've got it right here. It arrived about two days ago and I put it through its paces. It's got a really nice uh, like nine or 10 blade aperture. I'm not sure uh, just by my counts, just looking at it. Uh, it's a really smooth, well-built operation. It functions just really nice in your hand in terms of how everything operates. And it is by far the worst macro lens I have ever had my hands on <laughs> optically. This thing is a piece of garbage and strong I'm, words my friend i'm really sad about that because i want this thing to be excellent See, i want and, and here's the problem with what you just said remember when you know like for me early on it was nothing i'm not buying anything but canon glass because at the time third-party companies like tamron like sigma yeah, they made some good glass, but it was hit and miss on quality control. And it used to be, you know, in Fred Miranda and stuff, it was a big deal of, you know, did you get a good copy of this lens? You had a, a higher miss ratio than you did with name brands. Now, Sigma has completely changed that with the Art Series lenses, which are amazing lenses, hands down. Lenses like this and what you just said takes me right back to that stereotype of third-party lenses, and it does a disservice to the entire third-party lens industry when you release something that's well-built and crap. 
Yeah, I mean, it just, it feels really good. It's smaller and lighter and it has a longer working distance. Um, but wide open at f2.8 on this lens. Um, it is so soft. It's like it's a soft, fo- like you smeared Vaseline all over it, um, which might work for some portrait photographers. I mean, it's worked in the past if it was an effect that you were after. But this is the native format for that lens. It does get a little bit clearer. I, I only really tested it at the five to one magnification because if you're going to get a lens like this, it better perform at the extremes. That's why you're getting it. Otherwise, get a regular macro lens and put extension tubes or a close-up filter or, or whatever you have on it. You're getting something like this so that you can go to those extremes. And it's half the price than the Canon lens. And we've seen great lenses. What, what, from, what's the cost on that? 500 bucks or something like that? 500 bucks. And the, uh, the Canon MPE is 1050 so uh, just under half the price. Uh, uh, Young Nuo has famously come out with some great lenses that are almost free in terms of price to their competition. They're not quite as good, but they're comparable and the value proposition is there. Could, let, me, not- let me ask you something since you're the macro yeah. guy. Because when I read this article, there's two things I did not understand. So one of them is they make a comment and I'm quoting here, one of the longest working distance for any all caps they did macro lens and it references insects and bugs with a minimum working distance of 10 centimeters or four inches at five time or 27.2 centimeters at 10 inches at one time magnification for you as a macro photographer does that really matter that you've got a minimum working distance of four or 10 based on power um well I think your physical body presence hovering over a subject uh, would be more intimidating than that distance shift between the end of the lens and the actual subject, because you're you're there. Like if you're, but like, but I mean, uh, here here's what I mean though. They're saying four inches at five time and ten inches at one time. How did? I don't understand a relationship there to a normal macro lens. So uh, normal macro lenses, of course, don't get to a five times magnification. Uh, but on the Canon MPE 65, if you dial that into a, um, a five to one magnification, a five times magnification, uh, on the lens barrel, it says, uh, I, I don't know if it says it, in, I think it says it in inches, but in millimeters, I know that it's 44 millimeters. So that's about four centimeters away from your subject at five to one. You're pretty close. You're almost on top of it. Even if you were further away from your subject by, you know, an inch or two, you're still an intimidating, imposing object. It's not the camera. It's you that's going to be scaring your subject as a predator. But Uh, wouldn't it, it make focusing easier though? No. No, it wouldn't make focusing easier. In fact, um, if you're at a specific magnification, say if we're comparing apples to apples, you're at five to one. Right. Uh, so you, if your focal length is longer, a great, great comparison would be like a 40 millimeter macro lens at one-to-one versus 180 millimeter macro lens at one-to-one. You're at the same magnification factor. You will have a shallower depth of field at the 180 millimeter focal length. Um, and so if I'm at 85 millimeter, this is measured at the one-to-one, not at the five, but, but, but if I was at the longer focal length compared to the competition, my depth of field would thereby inherently be a little bit shallower than the MPE at 65. So, and I don't know exactly all of the metrics and the numbers and the calculations, but I just, I'm understanding that at similar magnifications, if my focal length is longer than my depth of field is inherently going to be a tiny bit shorter. Okay, so then the second one was, and I literally don't understand what this means, telecentric design for minimal focus breathing and therefore easier focus stacking. 
So telecentricity, um, this is more commonly a term used in microscope objectives. And it's one of the reasons why I love the uh, Michitoyo uh, plan APO microscope objectives. While they're not entirely telecentric, they're very close to it. Uh, it means that as you shift the camera forward and backward uh, to shift your focus, the actual framing around the outer edges doesn't shift very much. There's not a whole lot of focus breathing. If you take into oh. account um, a regular uh, a regular lens, a lot of people don't realize that when you switch the focal length uh, or uh, when you switch the focus on a lens, even on a prime lens, you're oftentimes also slightly changing the focal right. length of that lens. Changing the focal length of the lens changes the field of view of the lens, which is normally associated with focus breathing. And if you were to then uh, combine a bunch of images together for focus stacking, adjusting the focus that way, they would have to nest into each other like uh, Russian matroshka stacking dolls. And you have to uh, compensate for that and you got to throw away some image because of it but even if you do you still have um the the field of view differential which computationally you might be able to deal with but it's still something you have to deal with that if you didn't have to it's better in terms of your final result so from an engineering standpoint that makes sense a telecentric design um but this lens is just so soft wide open so it's almost unusable the, explain the images in the the images in the post when i saw the first bug image yeah, they look decent, but I'm sure that like a heavy dehaze slider has been applied to that in post-processing in Man. order to recover any amount of contrast. And I did a test when this lens arrived, uh, and I also uh, purchased the um, the Venus Optics, um, the Laowa 25 millimeter 2.5, uh, sorry, uh, 25 millimeter f 2.8, uh, 2.5 to five times magnification lens, which is a oh, that's small tiny. little uh, compact little unit. And uh, I'm mentioning this because they also announced that it's now going to be available natively in the Canon RF and Nikon Z mounts because third-party adoption is coming to those platforms, which is very helpful for the mirrorless market. Hopefully, there'll right. be a, an L-mount version eventually for my persuasions. But um, I decided, okay, well, this is also another third-party five-times macro lens. It came out a year or two ago. Um, and let's just do a test of those. And every other high magnification macro lens that I have, the Canon MPE 65, microscope objectives, even Bellows lenses that date back to the mid 70s, and a few other bits and pieces uh, around. And so I did a test, and that article is currently on Petapixel. It was published earlier today. Uh, and so I'll put a link to that in the show notes along with this article. The Canon MPE is still sort of the benchmark, and I use that as the first marker. The Canon 20 millimeter Bellows lens from 1976, not too bad. I mean, it's not great by today's standards, but it holds up. The Laowa 25 is pretty decent, wide open. It fails a little bit when you start to stop it down, but yeah, wide but open. wide open. This, the image you posted wide open is really nice. It's really nice. It, it even has a greater depth of field than the MPE 65. So that's a great contender wide open. Uh, the Metacon Creator, uh, so uh, Zongyi Optics made a 20 millimeter macro lens a couple of years ago. It wasn't great. Uh, it had some weird engineering things, but it still holds up okay in these tests. The new Metacon 85 millimeter is just atrocious i mean is it, i don't have i'm i'm looking at your images from that lens they they are horrible they I mean, they they're they're beyond horrible um and and i don't is know it exactly possible you got a bad copy 
I looked at other people's and other tests and I realized the same softness on a lot of those other tests. Yeah, but this so isn't just softness. There's there there isn't a drop of contrast. It's it's like it's no, like a faint watercolor. It's a it, it's more than a faint watercolor. It's uh it's just washed out. And I've even a soft focus lens, I've never seen wash out like this. And and then I compared it to the Michitoyo 10 times microscope objective, which has a you know, if we're talking about razor thin depth of field, this is this is beyond razor thin. This is like this is a, a tiny little fragment of a hair worth of depth of field. And so when we think about it in that regard, um, you're sacrificing depth of field for ultimate resolution, right? And if that's the case, and if that's what you're going for, then you will have the ultimate resolution possible. So when, when you're dealing with a uh, microscope objective, it's really easy to just adapt it to a 200 millimeter base lens. And I just bought a, uh, a Canon FD 200 millimeter F4. Like it cost me 20 bucks on, on eBay to attach this uh, uh, Toyo 10X objective. I've got a, a 2, a 10, 20, and 50, uh, even 100 times objective. Uh, that's ridiculous for most cases. But uh, at 10 times, that depth of field is so much shallower than any of the other lenses tested, even when I scale it down and uh, and, and make the same sizing. Uh, but when I stop that down using a little diaphragm, uh, which you can spend actually more than I spent on the lens, about $40 for between the microscope objective and the, uh, the, the camera lens, even when I stop that all the way down, it's comparable, if not better in some ways, than the Canon MPE 65 at 5.6, uh, f 5.6. So there's a lot of options out there and they've been around for a long time. A lot of people don't think of microscope objectives as something that can be uh, a viable solution because they just don't know how easy they are to adapt. Uh, but, uh, you know, with these lenses that we have on the market dedicated to photographers, uh, the Lyowa 25 is, uh, is far, far better than this new Mitacon, Mitacon, uh, 85 millimeter lens, which, I mean, I almost want just as we're recording this to throw it behind me and have it hit the floor. And I won't care if I shatter the front element. I'm assuming that you're going to return it. Uh, I'm going to see if I can. I mean, I might do a couple of additional tests just to be sure. Uh, but even my very first test before I did my comparison with everything, I was like, oh, no, this is not good. This is uh, just the look and the feel and the softness um, was not due to a shallow depth of field at f two point eight. It was due to optical flaws. I, and I'd wonder if you'd what would happen if you reached out to them. I I don't know. I, I maybe I'll try that. But when you stop it down to f five point six, it gets a little bit better. But that's when diffraction starts to come in, right? right. So you you know you're going to start to fail, especially when I'm shooting with a forty seven megapixel camera sensor. Uh, and then I did a test just to see, hey, does the quality get better in terms of contrast? at f11 and it doesn't but at f11 diffraction just blurs the heck out of anything useful and so your image quality your your detail rendition your resolution just fails you entirely so right. um i am sorely disappointed by this lens and i feel like a 20 year gap between the canon mpe 65 being released and this new lens coming out even from a third-party manufacturer i don't care who makes it but that 20 years should have made it better. I mean, the engineering quality and the computational design ability that we have today should have at least made this lens on par. And I'm disappointed. I'm well, going to take my ball and go home. The, the difference between your test shot 
and their test shots is is a fascinating piece of you know a fascinating data point. Something is not right. Well, I cropped in very heavily at the top of the Petapixel article. You can see an example of how heavily I cropped in to see the critical details, to see the lines running down a butterfly scale. And that was the critical point of interest within that test, how well you can see those lines. Because if you can't see them well, that's diffraction or optical flaws. Looking at the entire image overall, yeah, you can run a dehaze slider, you can run a contrast adjustment, you can, you know, uh, curve, make magic with that. But I was doing it raw, unedited, just to see how it compared to everything else at an extreme blow up in terms of resolution. And it just wasn't there. Not even close. Yeah, well... Now we know. Now we know. Uh, And so anybody that was tentatively considering to buy that lens, please, please reconsider. Uh, And I will reach out to uh, Zongyi Optics and to see what they have to say about it. Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath on their answer, though. Yeah, I agree. The next story, and I don't think we're going to spend a whole lot of time on this, um, is Petapixel is reporting that RAID slash NAS slash DAS 101 running out of storage space. And this is something that I think we all face as photographers. You know, you, you've got the, the hard drive in your computer. It starts to fill up. Well, what do you do? Well, you might buy an external hard drive. Well, that fills up. Well, you might buy a NAS uh, with multiple hard drives or a DAS, a, a network attack, uh, attached storage versus disk uh, or direct attached storage uh, plugged in via USB like a Drobo would be. Um, and then that starts to fill up. So then what do you do at that point? Because we're all going to be collecting more and more data. And Steve, I know you have an IT background. It's part of your business. Um, So from a photographer and an IT standpoint, where do you come to this? How should people approach the fact that they will never have enough data and how they can future-proof their storage? Well, first of all, you have to understand what RAID is. Excuse me. You have to understand what its intent is what its weak points are. And so you really can't separate out the IT side of it from the photographer side, even if you're using, okay, so you could argue that people using it at home are more consumer-based as opposed to enterprise being business. That's not the case. If you're a pro photographer shooting three weddings a weekend all year long, you're a pro. That is a business use case for your gear. Now, most people that I know that are using you know, any of these devices, a NAS, a DAS, you know, some sort of RAID device at home, they think in their head that they want to be able to upgrade individual drives to gain capacity. But what they don't realize is most people that are using this at home, the unit's going to die before the drives die anyway. So quite (laughs) often, you know, the mean time between failure on a drive is way higher than the electronics. These devices, Adrobo, Synology, whatever it is, they're effectively computing devices. They have a lifespan, like just your laptop, your computer, your desktop, whatever it is. You can assume a three to five year lifespan before you're going to replace it. You can kind of assume the same on any of these devices. They don't last forever. People buy UPSs and leave them forever and now and then replace the battery. I know people that replace batteries on UPSs for 10 years, but in reality, it's recommended even a UPS. UPS stands for? Uninterrupted power supply. So battery backup. Yeah. It's even recommended that those are replaced every three to five years for reliability. So the problem is two years into owning a device, 
you've got five, eight terabyte drives in there and you decide to upgrade and get two terabytes more by taking one eight out and put a 10 in. First of all, you don't actually get two. You're going to get less than that because you're also increasing the amount of parity, parity data that you need to store for that drive redundancy. So on a two-year-old device, you're changing out these drives on a device that may only have a year left. Quite often, it's actually a better investment to upgrade your gear. So here's the thing I want to tell people they need to think about when they're thinking about any type of RAID, NAS, DAS, whatever. <clears throat> think about what fits your needs and plan three to five years out. So think about your data retention, project where you're going to be in three to five years and buy a drive that has enough bays and or enough storage to get you through three to five years and you won't have that problem. And then in three to five years, you replace it with something that's newer, better technology, better, more capacity drives, and you're in a better place all the way around than trying to put new drives in a unit that's past 50% of its lifespan. That's a great point of view. I mean, I, I, I might uh, be a bit contentious of the life of the actual device. Some of them will survive long, um, but you've got heat on processors and they well, will fail eventually. You're, you're right. Some will last longer. And again, people keep UPSs for 10 years. People keep their cars for 10 years. But like anything in the world, the longer the lifespan, the higher chance of failure. And the whole idea is you don't want to do disaster recovery. And I, I would say that, you know, Drobo has its beyond raid. Synology has its uh, similar technology. I'd stick to a standard raid tech, raid five or raid six, preferably raid six, uh, which would have dual disk redundancy. If two disks fail, you haven't lost anything. You're talking, if you're a professional about your business here and you could lose everything and you don't want to do that. But even as a, as a consumer, you still don't want to lose your images. And if it costs you a little bit extra uh, in terms of storage space or, or, or dollars, it makes sense to do that. Uh, and if you stick to one of those standard RAID formats, you can switch brands. You can throw those drives if the uh, if the uh, uh, RAID unit itself, the enclosure fails. You can put that into a new one and recover your data. Now, that well, let me let me tricky. let me interject on something there. Yep, <clears throat> that's not always the case. So, first of all, if if you have any type of RAID, whether it be a Beyond RAID in a Drobo or something else, you do increase the chance of it not coming back to try and take the drives out of bay, you know, or, or out of unit one, all five drives, let's say, and put them in a duplicate identical unit, they should come back up. But that is an area where you will often see failure. Yep. So a couple of things. First of all, I'm a fan of traditional RAID. There were years that I was completely against Beyond RAID. I was completely against what I call proprietary RAID, which is where those drives are being used with a software system designed by a manufacturer only good in their units. Yeah. The truth is moving standard RAID from one unit to another can also have its own pitfalls. Nowadays, the Beyond RAID and the Synology stuff works great. Again, in an emergency, it's great to be able to swap out a drive that's bigger, use a drive of a different size that can be handy in an emergency. I don't think it's a good thing to plan on. But if you're going to go standard RAID, <clears throat> you need to understand that 
standard raid does require that each individual drive in the raid be the exact same size. I usually recommend the exact same manufacturer drives. So when you're planning this, think about your intended use. Are these going to be your work files? If these are your actual working files, you may choose a different type of raid. Are these going to be on-site backup, which by the way, is not a backup. It's a duplicate copy. You still need off-site backup, right? Are you going to do both on one unit? A lot of people do. I highly recommend against having a backup and originals on the same drive because if the unit fails, you're dead. But here's the here's the choices that you have. So from a RAID point of view, quick just covery because you mentioned RAID 6. I want to get this in there. If you are doing a RAID for performance as opposed to redundancy, that's RAID 0, which is striping. That's where each individual data set is written across all drives at one time, increasing your write and read performance, right? And if one drive fails, you lose everything. Again, that is basically just a bunch of big disks used as one. If anything fails, your data is gone, right? Then there's redundancy with increased read performance, but a penalty on write performance. That's RAID 1. That's a mirror. Mirrors are great because you can recover very fast. You literally have one drive that's a duplicate copy of the other other drive at all times. It's a slower write performance because it's writing to two disks, but you still get good read performance and you get redundancy. Then you have the standard RAID 5. RAID 5 is going to give you great performance because you are striping across multiple disks. There is a slight penalty in that you're also writing parity information to those disks but that gives you redundancy for a single drive failure. Dual drive redundancy is just like RAID 5, but you can have two drives fail, and that's RAID 6. And then there's RAID 10, which is very common in a lot of industries and customers that I support. RAID 10 is a combination of RAID 5 and RAID 1 mirroring. So effectively what you have is you have a complete RAID 5 system that is then mirrored to a completely other RAID 5 system. But there's one, the the reason I go through all of these is there's one thing that nobody ever talks about when they do this. I don't do a RAID system without this, a hot spare. Ah, I got one in my array right now. And, And okay, so you'll know what I mean here. And no one ever mentions it. So having dual drive failure is great, right? You, you, you lose a drive, RAID still runs and you still have redundancy. But if your drives are hitting a point where one failed, you will probably have a higher increased percentage of times that a second drive will fail near that. And if that happens and a second drive fails, you are now without protection. And when you replace that drive, if you only have a RAID 5 or only one drive redundancy after a failure of one drive in a 6, in a RAID 6, you are vulnerable during the rebuild. So as you swap out that one parity drive in a RAID 5 system, and as it rebuilds the RAID and the redundancy, All of your data is vulnerable to another drive failure. And if this happens at 2 a.m. and you're asleep and a drive fails, you want to have the rebuild process happen immediately as quickly as possible because you don't want to put anything to chance. You don't want your data to be at risk. And so if you have a hot spare, basically it's a drive spun up in the system it's running, but there's nothing on it. It's waiting. It is ready to jump in. It's on the sidelines, uh, w- waiting for somebody else to be injured on the field to just jump in and take their place. Uh, and the rebuild process, especially if you have a lot of data, can take a long time. It can take half a day, maybe more, depending on how much data. I, and I've had rebuilds take over a day. 
to happen in a production environment. And here's the thing. There's a lot of times where even in homes, I know people who put these things in a closet. Oh, and the heat is not its friend. Well, but not only that, they never look at it. Right. So they could have had a dry fail a month ago and not know. So it's critical that you not only protect yourself with the redundancy and multiple drive redundancy, but that you give yourself the ability, if you don't get there, you're on whatever, to have it at least kick in a spare automatically. So here's my thought, Steve. Let's see if you agree with me. Um, let's say you're looking at a five five bay uh, NAS or DAS, however it's going to be, whether you plug it into an Ethernet cable or directly via USB, doesn't matter for this scenario. But five drives and you want to fill them all up and you want to have either RAID 5 or RAID 6, it doesn't matter for this hypothetical scenario. Well, if you then have to start upgrading individual drives from like eight terabytes to 10 terabytes or 12 or whatever, you're not going to see a huge return on your investment for that. And your data is going to be at risk every time you're rebuilding the array to some degree, especially if you're in RAID 5. My advice instead of getting a five bay RAID array, spend a little bit of extra money up front. Get an eight bay uh, or six, but let's say eight. Uh, So you have some open space in there. You've got space for a hot spare to be spun up and ready uh, ready to to take control if things go awry. But you also will have extra drive space in there for you to say, okay, you know what? A year or two later, I didn't budget my drive space appropriately. I'm going to buy another drive, the same capacity. I'm going to increase my capacity overall for this entire array. Maybe I'll buy another two. Maybe I'll buy another three. Uh, and, And I wouldn't recommend losing your hot spare in this process. But if you, if you fill up that eight bay down the road, you will increase your space dramatically compared to increasing the capacity of individual drives, which we would only be able to do in a beyond rate or similar type scenario. Uh, so if you were building the array with 10 terabyte drives, you add another 10 terabyte drive that gets split across all of the parity. You don't get 10 terabytes, but you, you get, get a close. Lot cl- you get closer to 10 terabytes, the more drives you have in the array. And so that helps helps you live out the life of that array until it's time to just say, okay, my data's there. It's time to just buy an entirely new one now that 20 terabyte drives are available five years from now. There's a key distinction there though. And that is A, if you are using standard RAID and not a proprietary like a beyond RAID, standard RAID, you have to use the same size drives. Yeah. And so if you add a 10 in, but all your other drives are eight, it's only going to see eight of that and use eight of that. And then you're going to lose off the eight for the parity. The the other thing is it's going to depend on your RAID device and RAID controller, because some of them will not allow you to add another drive and add it into the RAID. You'd have to create a second RAID array. In that particular, I would not be happy with that kind of controller. My Synology array allows me to just add another drive in, and Correct. yes, it's it just it 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 heats up a little bit right next to me. I can feel a little bit of a glow from it as those processors, the fans, spin up. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still functional, and it will and allow it, me to. And I actually rebuilt on the same array. I had eight terabyte drives in there originally. I had four or five of them. And then I realized if I'm going to fill this whole thing up, I might as well start a second array within it because it has 12 slots. So I plugged in 12 terabyte drives in the open slots, migrated my data over, and then I pulled out the eight terabyte drives and I I filled it all up with 12s. But um, everybody has a a Synology fan. I think Synology is a great choice. I, I, I prefer Synology myself over Drobo because 
I, I think some of their their add-on features are also you know better. But the key here is it's it's like anything you design, even when you're designing a database, you don't think about how you're putting the data in, you think about how you're getting the data out. So if you design it with three to five years of life, the odds are this is a moot point anyway, and you're not going to have to deal with it. One of the downsides of trying to increase and buy same drive sizes, by the way, is I've had servers that lasted five years using you know very high-end 1500 RPM SCSI drives. Well, when a drive failed, I had trouble finding a replacement. Yeah. Because they didn't sell, you know, at the time I'll make something up. They didn't sell 30 gigabyte drives anymore. SCSI is such a weird acronym. S-C-S-I is how you actually write it and it's pronounced SCSI. Yeah. Yeah. It's old, old technology, but servers actually still use serial attached SCSI drives a lot of times. So anyway, the main thing is design your RAID system with enough runway at the cheap cost of storage to begin with, you've already bought by the unit drives. Aren't that much design it to give you what you know, will get you three to five years. And it becomes a moot point. You're not going to put new drives in the old bay. You're going to sell the old bay to cover the cost of a new one. And because the cost of a new one will actually give you a throughput performance uh, in most cases, uh, because technology always marches ahead and you'd want to have faster access to your data. Not you'll just end up with storage. Thunderbolt t- instead of USB two. Yeah, Exactly. All right. Well, we've talked that one, I think, uh, to, to death, but it is a very important topic. And it's something that if if you have questions about, I'm sure, Steve, you would encourage people to contact you or me to sort that out. And Steve, uh, that's a great point to say, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can find me on social media, uh, Twitter or Instagram at Steve Brazel. It's the same as the country Brazil, but two L's or at my website, which is stevebrazel.com. Podcast is behindtheshot.tv. All right. Thanks for that plug. Uh, I really encourage and at Del Taco to check at out. lunch. They can find me at Del Taco at lunch. <laughs> uh, and let's get into our, our, our latest story, uh, our last story, rather. Uh, the Motorola One Hyper. Oh, exciting. Tosses a 64 megapixel main camera and a 32 megapixel selfie camera into a $400 phone. What a great deal is this, Steve? I wrote three lines. In my notes, I, I write notes on everything, just like bullet points, because I don't want to forget to say something. And the first three things I wrote was, and I quote, this is stupid. This is stupid. This is stupid. <laughs> I had really hoped that we had passed the megapixel race, right? I don't need 75 megapixels in my camera. And if you're somebody who does, that's great. But I definitely don't need 64 megapixels in my phone, a phone that, by the way, only comes with 128 gig. Well, and, and especially that that 40 uh, or 64 megapixels doesn't actually take 64 megapixel images. It's one of those weird quad bear pattern images that ends up actually recording a 16 megapixel image. So why the heck are you even bothering uh, interpolating that data and figuring out how to best represent those pixels when diffraction as I just saw with those macro lens tests, is going to be the biggest enemy of anything. You you'll said have something airy- interesting. Yeah. The, the the sensor type you said that they're using is taking, the way I read it, it was, it's a 64 megapixel sensor, but a secondary sensor at 16 megapixels, both of them at f1.9. You're, you're reading that as 16 megapixel images? I, I had looked up- In a Bayer the, configuration? Um, I looked up the original uh, uh, sensor, and it was uh, what was it here? Uh, 
the IMX 686 image sensor from uh, from Sony, and that is a quad Bayer pattern image sensor. And basically, uh-huh. what that means is um, they might have reconfigured it. I can't confirm, but uh, it basically means that for every pixel, you actually have four pixels. Right. Uh, and maybe in some way this could help with moiré, but diffraction is going to blur the heck out of any of those details anyhow, because you'll have airy disks rippling across from one pixel to the other. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about and you don't know what an airy disk is, look it up. You'll find a fascinating waste of time on Wikipedia to figure all that stuff out. But um, And then they have a wide angle that's only eight. Yeah. Um, I mean, what? So the, the, the pixel pitch on the uh, uh, that's uh, IMX 686 sensor, if that's indeed what they're using, and it, uh, I'm just a, making an assumption here because it's the only one available that they could be using there. Um, it has a pixel pitch of 1.9 or uh, 1.6 microns. And if I were to apply that, I actually did the math wrong in the uh, show notes that I originally sent you. Um, I was assuming that doubling the pixel pitch uh, or uh, cutting it in half would double the resolution. It would quadruple it. So it would be as if I would have a 250 megapixel sensor in my Lumix S1R based on the math that I have here. Right. And uh, I mean, if I'm shooting at like F0.95 with the best engineered lens like that Nikon knocked, maybe I'd be able to resolve it in a very thin line of focus. But that's the only time when a lens like that would actually perform to its best. Uh, the size of the individual pixels has a great bearing on the actual quality that gets resolved. Right. And, and this is one of the reasons why um, uh, high resolution, uh, high zoom point and shoot cameras traditionally performed quite poor to their larger sensor fixed lens, uh, you know, uh, contemporaries because the pixels were so small and you can't really deal with that outside of, you know, uh, coming up with a new physics model and you can't really change the way that light bends. It's just going to diffract when it passes through an opening. And if it bends too far, you're not going to get a quality result. So I don't know what this whole trend is aside from marketing for saying, oh, a 64 megapixel camera has to be better than a 50 or a 40 or a 30. I don't see any reason why a a smartphone camera with the sensor sizes that they currently have should have a sensor capable of doing more than 16 megapixels. And that's at the upper upper ceiling. And I would argue in a $400 phone, if they'd done a 16 megapixel sensor, a 16 megapixel wide, and up their video capability from 4K30 to 4K60... Okay, there's no slow-mo. I'll live with that. But right now it's 4K 30 and you get 60 at 1080. Uh, There are positives. It has a USB-C and it does have a 3.5 millimeter audio jack. (laughs) And the battery is uh, 4,000 milliamp hours. It's 38 hours in battery and apparently in 10 minutes, they give you a 45-watt charger. In 10 minutes, you can get a full-day charge out of it. But I got to ask you, it. I can't believe I'm going to say this about a phone. It has a pop-up, you heard me correct, a pop-up, like a flash pop-up selfie camera because they didn't want to put a dot in the screen. Uh, um, my question to you, Steve, is will it blend? Say that again? <laughs> uh, will it blend? The, yeah, the famous YouTube I, series of putting it into a high quality blender and seeing if it can tear it apart. Because I, honestly, that's what I care more about than a pop up selfie camera. It's this. It's all I can think of is that camera on almost. People can't ca- keep their phones and not break the screen. 
There is yeah. no way people aren't going to break that pop-up selfie camera off. Okay, well, this phone will not be anybody's pick of the week, I hope. Nope. Uh, but I know we're semi-short on time here, Steve, so let's get into those picks of the week before we run out of time. Uh, mine, after my current tests, um, is the uh, the Lyo 25mm macro. Uh, 2.5 to 5, so you have to be playing in the extremes to get this to work. But when I was testing it against the Canon MPE65 at 5 to 1 magnification, it gave me pretty well equal the same image quality wide open. It, it fell off faster when I stopped down. But at the same image quality wide open, it also gave me a slightly greater depth of field uh, and it's cheaper. And it's available in many uh, different camera mounts. As we mentioned earlier, it's now available in the Canon R and Nikon Z mounts. Um, so check out the uh, the Venus Optics Laowa 25mm macro. It's the first high magnification macro lens aside from the Canon that I would recommend. It's smaller in your hand than I would have pictured. Yeah, it, it's much, much smaller than the Canon and much lighter as well. The only thing that I don't like about this, no filter thread on the front, which makes it very difficult to attach a ring flash or a macro twin light to it. Yes, you can use gaffer's tape and I'm sure you could come up with some uh, other exotic solutions. The lens cap actually clicks into place when it's locked in place, which makes me believe it might be possible to uh, devise an adapter that would click in that has a filter thread on that, but my research says that none exists right now. Uh, even still, it gets my recommendation as a nice high magnification macro lens for a variety of camera mounts, uh, and I'm writing about that in my new book. Awesome. So my pick, pick of the week is uh, this thing that's in my hand, which nobody can see, which is really too bad. But this is the lit wireless solar power bank type C. And basically what this is, is just as your standard USB battery bank, right? Power bank that you can plug your phone into to charge it. It's at litsolar.com, L-I-T-S-O-L-A-R.com. And here's what I love about this thing. I got one because I heard about it on a podcast. And the guy on the podcast gave out a 50% off code. And I I bought one and now we keep it in my wife's car for emergencies. And I loved it so much. I bought one for my car because this thing is absolutely awesome. First of all, one side of it is a solar panel. So in an emergency, like in Southern California, if we had a major earthquake, I can charge this thing up on solar, which is fantastic. The other side is actually a Qi charger. So you can do wireless charging of your phone. Plus, if you hit the button twice, it turns on to a very bright LED flashlight. And if you hit the button again, it turns into a red and blue blinking emergency light. Very, very cool. But wait, there's more. You charge this thing over USB-C, but then on the end, there are actually two USB-A plugs to charge things. So you not only have two of the USB-A plugs to charge your phone, but you also have the Qi charging. So in an emergency, if you've got a family and you've got multiple devices, you can charge them all. And to get you charged, it is 20,000 milliamps of battery in your hand. I love this thing. It's normally $110 US, but I'm going to do the same thing. The guy that originally said it on a podcast that I heard <laughs> in the box, they give you a little card <clears throat> and the card says 50% off use this code and I don't know that they intend for me to share this on a podcast, but if you but go you to litsolar.com, the code is SAVE50, no spaces, S-A-V-E 50, 
And that'll get you 50% off of this thing. And I'm, I'm serious. I, I love this as a battery backup. That's awesome. And and the fact that it's wireless charging, the fact that it has a solar panel, you know, chances are you'd always have it charged up just in case. Um, and uh, I, I believe it'll charge two phones at a time. Uh, it'll charge two phones at a time. Plus you got the USB stuff. But here's the other thing. The USB out are, are uh, 3.0 and the Qi charging is actually fast charging. So 7.5 watts for an iPhone, 10 watts for Android. Wow. So it's not a it's not a weak Qi charger. This is fast charging. Um, it is just it's fantastic. All right. Well, I might have to get me one of those. Uh, we don't have a lot of power outages here, but if it does happen, uh, I, I want to not just be prepared for myself, but you want to be able to offer some level of support to those around you that might be less fortunate that didn't plug in their phone and they're at 20% and you don't know how long that power is going to last. You want to be that lifeline, uh, not just to yourself, but your family and friends. So, Well, and I even thought about it. You go to the beach with friends. And you stay at night and you've got a fire pit going and you want to charge your mobile devices. You want a couple people to be able to wirelessly charge because you don't have a USB cable or you need a flashlight. Yeah. And you can really charge cool. it all day long in the sun. Or you, ch- you, you plug in your camera charger, right? You can plug your mm-hmm. camera yeah. right into that. I've got just like a USB-C charger on my camera and I could just recharge my camera battery if I am on that beach and I'm waiting for the sun to go down and doing some star trails and astrophotography and what have you, but I spent the whole day shooting and I didn't bring a second battery. Well, there you have it. There's a lot of use cases for that. And let me let me add one thing because there's there's the one thing I didn't like is, is devices that give you a cable. So this is USB-C on one side, USB-A on the other, or... It's got a little adapter that you can drop off and it's USB-C on both sides. That's kind of oh, cool. neat. Yeah. But they don't give you the power. So <clears throat> you have to have... Sorry about that. I had to clear my throat. You have to have your own charger. And so what I used was the little white square that comes with an iPhone. And the downside of that is to charge this giant battery off that little teeny five watt adapter, you're going to be there for a while, Right. So you got to supply your own charge charge unit. But other than that, I love this thing. And it, at half off, it is well worth it. Right. And uh, like I said, I'm going to put that on my buy list. Uh, as soon as we finish recording, I'm going to go and get one of those because you never know when that's going to come in handy. Yep. And yeah, you know, batteries, like you mentioned with UPSs might not last you that long. Um, but the chances are that that device, that, uh, that uh, wireless charger will outlast the phone that's currently in your pocket right now because that technology changes even faster. Yep, I agree. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Steve, for being on again. It's always a pleasure to have you here. You do the most research of any guest. Uh, Your opinions are always uh, appreciated. Even if we have uh, uh, differing opinions on some things, we always respect each other's opinion. And and it's, it's okay to have different points of view, as we see on the critique show that we had done recently. Uh, where you know it's a great discussion, and I encourage everybody to take a look at Behind the Shot TV uh, on uh, Thursday, December twelfth. If that is when it does go live, yeah, it, it I, should I, come out that day. And, and I agree. Uh, you know, we don't disagree often, but when we do, we do it with respect, which is great. And I just appreciate you having me on the show. I've, I've had to clear my throat a lot today, so I apologize if that came through. I've tried to do it quietly. I was on a photo walk yesterday and talked a lot, so my throat's raw. Oh, I know what that's all about. And hey, if anybody else is out going on a photo walk or about to, well, you know what I'm about to say. It's time to get out and shoot. 